You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's show is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Bloodgroove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our Quartermasters, Heather, Hunter, Howard, Buddy, Roger the Cabin Boy, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Sophie, Raymond, Jesse, Adam, and Ross, as well as our newest Commodores, Andrew and Misfit. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. I am International Pirate Hall of Fame inaugural inductee, Matt Albers. That's right, I've been chosen to be among the first class of the International Pirate Hall of Fame. Not to worry, I'm not going to let this go to my head so long as you all now call me, from here on out, International Pirate Hall of Fame inductee, Matt Albers. They're a new group, the International Pirate Hall of Fame, and yeah, it's pretty cool to have been recognized. But when you see my fellow inductees, we're talking about titans. Real pirates, naturally, but also artists and historians, and, and titans of literature. One of these things just doesn't seem to fit. However, to whomever it was that nominated me, and to everyone involved in the selection process, a big thank you. Before we get going today, there is one thing I'd like to note, and it does tie into today's episode. Listener Sean sent me an article recently, and really, you could say it inspired today's episode. We're going to be taking a break from Captain Kidd and our overall narrative today. Instead, this is going to be an episode of ideas and concepts. 
If that sounds interesting and you wind up liking today's episode, it's because I'm great at my job. If it sounds boring and you hate today's episode, well, Sean did send me that article, you know. This is episode 252, A Monopoly of Violence. That article that Sean sent me, and you know, don't really blame him if you don't like it, I'm trying something kind of new here. That article was about a bill currently before the U.S. House of Representatives. Republican lawmaker Lance Gooden from Texas has introduced a bill that would permit Congress to once again issue letters of mark. They would have the power to commission privateers. Now, that's a power that the Constitution has always granted, and technically still does grant to the Congress. But it's one of those... Is outdated the right word here? The Bill of Rights still bars the government from billeting troops in private residences, which, you know, that's great, I guess. I don't want a platoon of soldiers crashing at my place for a couple of weeks, but it's not relevant to our modern military. Similarly, the power to commission privateers is fine, it's not hurting anyone, but it's also not relevant. No private mariner in the United States or its surrounding waters has the capability to adequately fight in modern naval warfare. Back in the 18th century, when every ship sailing had to have at least a couple of big guns, they had to have them to protect themselves from, I suppose it would have been the British, they could buy a dozen cannons and a few muskets and they could be pretty successful as a privateer. But can you imagine a modern speedboat or a yacht pulling it off, serving as a privateer against a modern naval ship? As fun as it sounds to get the boys together, take out the boat, drink a few beers, and shoot some guns, you're not going to fare too well against a modern warship. But that's not exactly what this bill is proposing. To put this all into context, this bill was proposed almost immediately after President Biden's 2022 State of the Union, a speech in which Ukraine was one of the big issues. Biden said that the U.S. would be seizing the assets of all Russian oligarchs. Which, you know, just as an aside, isn't it funny how we always call rich and powerful Russians oligarchs, but never U.S. billionaires? You know, you never hear Bezos or Zuckerberg or the Kochs or Soros or Elon Musk called an oligarch. The point, though, is Joe Biden said that we would seize Russian assets, money and property, of course, but he made special mention of their yachts. Now, he didn't announce his plan, if he's got one, but of course, if he's got one, you don't want to say it on national television. Still, though, it could just be hot air. And that's what this bill is supposed to address. These modern privateers would have license to seize those Russian yachts. Now, on the one hand, this bill is probably just political theater. It's a GOP representative putting a bill before the Congress that would allow him to give big, loud speeches about how weak and ineffectual the president is, while, because it's, you know, an interesting idea, making a bunch of headlines getting people like me to talk about it. But, you know, that's a cynical outlook. You know, our lawmakers rarely actually make laws anymore, but 
political posturing really helps all of their fundraising efforts. Still, though, if we tried to look at it without my veil of cynicism, there is one interesting and potentially terrifying bit in that bill. If it did manage to pass, and, you know, it's got a snowball's chance of it, but if it did, there is a clause in there that would include hackers. As in, the U.S. would commission white hat hackers as privateers and other online agents to disrupt Russian infrastructure. And if it did, by some miracle, I don't think we'd actually really see any privateers on the high seas. Maybe we would get some private naval contractors involved. But even then, those aren't privateers. That's not some guy from Providence who has a ship deciding to go on the account. Those are people who are connected. They're always married to or brother to somebody high up in the federal government. That's how they get those contracts. You know, we have a right in that constitution that lets us establish and maintain a well-regulated militia. And private citizens can kind of exercise that right, but not really. And it's that that brings me to the monopoly of violence. No state, no nation, no polity has ever granted independent actors the right to commit violence on their behalf when that state or polity was capable of doing so itself. You know, right now, the Navy or the Marines or the Air Force, anybody, could do a better job than some guys from Louisiana on a boat with some guns. No offense to guys from Louisiana on a boat with some guns, but you don't have artillery. And that is the monopoly of violence. Now, naturally, there are exceptions to that rule. There have been private actors involved in state violence at very high levels, but usually they involve gobsmacking amounts of corruption and nepotism, like those private naval contractors we mentioned. This concept, the idea of a state monopoly on violence is integral to piracy. It's seminal to piracy. It's the defining element of what makes a pirate a pirate. But it's in the negative. Pirates are the antithesis of that monopoly of violence. You will sometimes see it said, often in the introduction to books about pirates, that piracy is as old as human history, or maybe even older than that. You'll see it said that, for as long as human beings have taken boats out on the water, there have been those who wanted to steal from them. And that's true. Theft at sea has certainly been happening since before recorded history began. It's an idea that I myself have parroted. But it's not really true that piracy is that old. Theft at sea does not alone a pirate make. By definition, pirates require a state that possesses a monopoly of violence. It's like... Well, I'm having trouble coming up with a good way to express this, in a way that I think really clarifies the issue, so... I'm going to go with Batman. Batman and the Joker, specifically. The Joker is everyone's favorite Batman villain, right? But... Without Batman, the Joker is just some random crazy guy. Batman defines the Joker. He gives him purpose. In this analogy, 
Batman is the state, and the Joker is pirates. You know, you can rob people at sea, but unless there's a state to whom you are opposed, or who is opposing you, you're just some random sea robber. Let's try a different tactic here. To get to the root of what I'm talking about, we're going to need to go back to the ancient Roman Republic. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The late Roman Republic had a serious problem with pirates in the eastern Mediterranean. These problems, though, were entirely of their own making. I do have half a mind to do some episodes on these pirates in the future, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time going into the deep history of the late Roman Republic here. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible here, which really isn't that simple. So... Way before Rome even existed, you have the Persian Empire. That includes modern-day Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, among a bunch of other territories. It was huge. But then Alexander the Great came along and conquered the Persian Empire. It was a pretty big deal. When Alexander died, his empire broke up into several smaller empires. The largest of these was called the Seleucid Empire which corresponded roughly to Persian territory. The important bit for our story is what the Romans called Asia, what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey today. The Seleucids controlled most of Asia Minor, except for a stretch of coastline on the south of the peninsula. That stretch of coastline was called Cilicia. There's not much in the way of farmland or pasture land. What it has, though, are hundreds of excellent and highly defensible harbors. Now, this stretch of coastline, Cilicia, was technically the property of the Ptolemaic kingdom, which is to say, Egypt. That's another of Alexander's former territories, founded by one of his generals called Ptolemy. Cilicia, though, it was technically part of the Ptolemaic kingdom, but really it was mostly independent. There really wasn't much there except for pirates. Those pirates preyed on the shipping between the Ptolemaic Kingdom and the Seleucid Empire. And when those two kingdoms went to war with each other, the pirates created something of a no-man's land, kind of a naval buffer zone there in the south of the kingdom. All the while, both of those empires did their bit to keep the pirates in check. The pirates there never got out of hand, but they were never fully wiped out either. That buffer zone was useful, plus the pirated goods they would bring in, capture a Ptolemaic ship, sell it in Seleucid territory, and vice versa. 
everything was in balance, and then Rome burst onto the scene. They planted their flag all across Italy and then Sicily, and then they went to war with Carthage. Once those Punic Wars were over, the Roman Empire really began to blossom. They didn't call it an empire, it was still a republic, but they were conquering a lot of territory all over the place. Barbarian tribes and city-states and the kingdoms of Alexander's former empire all began to fall under Roman dominion, including Macedonia and Greece. Then the Romans began to push into Asia. The Seleucid Empire by this point was already on its last legs. They had a ton of internal civil wars and a ton of external pressures, and now the Romans finally toppled it over. Similarly, the Ptolemaic kingdom was also receding even before Rome burst onto the scene. But when they did, the Romans took Ptolemaic territory like Syria and Judea. But they left Egypt kind of alone, or rather they propped up the Ptolemies as a client kingdom, until their queen, Cleopatra, bet on the wrong Roman general a couple of generations down the line. Now that's a lot of information I'm throwing at you, and most of it's not really relevant. I mean, I didn't even talk about Mithridates, and how can you talk about the Cilician pirates without Mithridates? The point is, though, the two kingdoms that had been keeping these pirates in check no longer had any real presence in the eastern Mediterranean. Rome took their place on land, but Rome had virtually no navy to speak of. In the void of state power, the pirates thrived. They robbed, and they sacked, and they kidnapped to their heart's desire. Mostly it was Romans and Roman shipping that fell under their swords. The most famous of their victims was a young Gaius Julius Caesar. Now, Caesar was an anomaly. They ransomed him. Caesar actually berated them for making the ransom too low, but it was paid and he was released. Then he raised a fleet of his own, caught the pirates, and crucified the lot of them. But most of the time, the pirates were just successful, uncrucified by future military geniuses. By the time Caesar was an adult, the Cilician pirates were really beginning to cripple the Roman economy. It became a real danger. They weren't even able to get the grain from Egypt to Rome that fed the capital. It was in this period, during one of his tenures as consul, that the Roman lawyer Cicero wrote and spoke about the dangers posed by those pirates. In one of those speeches, he coined the phrase communis hostis omnium, or enemies of all. Cicero did not coin the more famous phrase that we all know and love, though we'll get to that in a minute. In his paper entitled God's Friend, the Whole World's Enemy, the Dutch legal philosopher Louis Sicking writes, quote, this so-called Cicero paradigm can be summarized as follows. According to the Roman philosopher, a pirate was a person who committed robberies at sea to his own advantage. A pirate is not an enemy of the state, so not a hostile state or a rebel movement, but an enemy of all, that is, of all mankind. End quote. A hostile state in wartime has to be defeated if there's any hope of moving back to the status quo antebellum. A rebel movement has to be crushed and then folded back into the state to preserve the cohesion of the state as a whole. But these pirates, once so useful to two very different states, 
now were labeled nothing but outlaws. Rome did not need them. They provided no service to the Roman Empire, so they were dubbed enemies of all. As outlaws, they could be killed without a proper trial, but that was really above and beyond the abilities of most private Roman naval units. So, eventually, Pompey Magnus had to earn his cognomen, Pompey the Great, in crushing those Cilician pirates. I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone to say that Rome had an absolute monopoly of violence in their territories. They might be the poster child for a monopoly of violence. By the time the empire was in full swing, you had two very distinct classes. Well, more than that, you had slaves and what were essentially peasants, but higher up the food chain, you've got soldiery, and then you've got fat cats, drinking wine and eating oysters and being Romans. And there was some blending between those two groups, but those two classes became more and more distinct. So you can begin to see what we're talking about when we talk about the monopoly of violence, the centralized state military power, the Batman, and the outlaws, the sea robbers, the pirates, or Joker. Rome stands on rooftops and glides around the city while all of the common thugs are too scared to mug anybody, right? But let's fast forward a few hundred years. The Goths and the Huns and all manner of barbarians have invaded the Roman Empire. They pass freely over borders that had once been staunchly defended. Lands that had, for centuries, not had any worry of warfare on their shores unless two Roman generals happened to clash, were now the site of bloody barbarian warfare. And the imperial forces weren't really able to do much about it. So they decentralized their defenses. From a well-defended frontier guarding the whole of the empire, they began to defend down at the local level. Cities which had once been open now began to build walls. They erected fortifications, and the commanders of these cities, called the dukes, led the defense of what were already almost recognizable as castles. These proto-castles were designed to withstand siege for months, if need be. But they had very little in the way of offensive capabilities. The emperor still held that monopoly on offensive violence. Those cities could hold out while they waited for the emperor and his imperial legion to march on the city and kick the barbarians around for a few days until they could go back to life as normal. Later on, the Imperial Legion itself would be decentralized into several Imperial Legions, but eventually the Empire in the West would fall. The Imperial Legion, all Imperial Legions, just ceased to exist. The monopoly of power held by the Empire just vanished. Command devolved down to those dukes and, at an even lower level, the vicars, which was a political position in the late empire. Soon enough, those dukes, which used to be spelled D-U-X, but would be spelled as we know it today, well, those dukes are really duking it out for the right to call themselves king. And these are what we call the Dark Ages. 
warlords that are struggling to carve out little fiefdoms all over Europe, and nobody could be said to have a monopoly of violence. No, I'm not really sure I have a point to make here. But if I did, it would probably be summed up in this question. Can you name any medieval pirates? And, you know, I'm sure some of you can. How about this? Can you name any groups of pirates, like the Cilician pirates or the Barbary pirates in the Middle Ages? Now, I'm sure some of you can, and there are a few examples we could point to. But for the most part, the Western world went about a thousand years without any notable pirates. Not to say that there weren't any sea robbers. There were Saxons, Vikings, if you were on the Baltic or the North Sea or the Mediterranean, you were going to run into sea robbers, they were everywhere. And for the most part, they really weren't that different from the Cilician pirates. They had homes, they had families, they had children, and they had usually weird religious beliefs, but why don't we tend to consider people like the Vikings pirates? Later on, sure, the Vikings had a state power behind them. By that point, they were really the Royal Norwegian Navy. But those aren't the Vikings that sacked Lindisfarne. And we're not even talking about groups of raiders like the Saxons, you know, just single Viking longships full of men looking for plunder. But they don't have a Batman. There's no centralized state, no massive power against whom they're going to clash. Instead, there are just hundreds of small, isolated groups of relatively armed peoples, but nobody has a monopoly of violence. They're just another group of armed people. Smaller and seaborne, but not that different than a duke in his castle. Let's take the words of one of the most important philosophers in the whole of Western history. St. Augustine wrote in his most famous work, City of God, quote, Alexander the Great asked a certain pirate whom he had captured what he was thinking of, that he should molest the sea. He said with defiant independence, The same as you when you molest the world. Since I do this with a little ship, I am called a pirate. You do it with a great fleet and are called an emperor. End quote. But for most of the Middle Ages, there weren't any Alexanders to point to. Charlemagne, maybe. That paper that I quoted earlier discusses what he calls the Augustinian paradigm. Sicken writes, quote, According to this view, the word pirate was used to denote an enemy and piracy to condemn enemy action. Enemy here does not entail the specific meaning that the word would get later in international law. Whether reference was made to a rival state or rebels was immaterial, as the term pirate was used solely to put down an enemy as criminal. End quote. To me, and I, I apologize for this, but it really does help me wrap my mind around it, the medieval era is like Gotham City without Batman. You've got the Penguin, you've got Two-Face, and Carmine Falcone, and Black Mask, and a dozen other mob gangs that are all competing for territory and power. And it's a chaotic mess of violence and ambition, all clashing together all the time. But without a Batman against whom they will channel their energy, it's just a never-ending mob war. 
in St. Augustine's world, pirates are just enemies, like everyone else. The pirates raiding your coastline aren't that different from the Duke a few miles down the road. They're all enemies to you. When it's all dukes and princes and petty warlords and kings of relatively small kingdoms, any enemy can be a pirate from the right point of view. If, say, Two-Face is moving in on Penguin's territory, who's the bad guy? I mean, you can't really say what you need is a Batman, a Roman Empire, to make those distinctions. So what changed? Why were there virtually no pirates for a thousand years and then, suddenly, the golden age of piracy? They seemed to be everywhere. Well, I've got an interesting point to make, but unfortunately, Dan Carlin pulled the rug right out from under me when he released his newest hardcore history episode. That shows about slavery, and the first third or so intersects with our time period pretty directly, but he makes a point that I already had written down, yet I had not recorded. He's talking about ancient slavery, which hits kind of a high point in ancient Rome. But then, when Rome disappears, slavery sort of goes with it. You know, feudalism existed, of course, and there were things like galley slaves, and of course there were people enslaved by and from the various Muslim caliphates. But mass slavery, a kind of slave class, died out in Europe. Until, that is, around about the mid-15th century. That's when the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was really on the ropes. Constantinople still stood, but more and more Eastern Orthodox texts were making their way to Venice and Milan and Vienna. Now, Dan Carlin points out that all of those old Greek and Roman texts talk about slaves, and those empires who relied on slave labor seemed to be doing pretty great. So, you know, why don't we do it here? But the big change, the really massive continental drift of the Renaissance, was also thanks to all of those old Roman texts. Medieval kings, you know, we might think of someone as the king of France or the king of England, but... They really weren't seen at the time as kings of a nation. Instead, they ruled personal kingdoms. And they did so by dint of the military might that they could muster. How many men could they raise personally, and how many men owed fealty to them who would bring soldiers to their banner? The more you had, the more powerful you were. But the soldiers that belonged to those dukes weren't their own men, and they might or might not come, depending on how powerful the king in question really was. You would be hard-pressed to find a medieval monarch, outside of Charlemagne and some of his successors, that really held an absolute monopoly of violence. But those old Roman emperors, on the other hand, well, they ruled by the grace of God. Some of them were gods, deified and literally worshipped by Roman citizens, and later on, once Christianity rolled around, they had the full might of the church behind them. That seemed to work out pretty well for the Roman Empire, didn't it? And so, in the 15th and 16th centuries, we see the rise of divine right absolutism. Kings and queens who ruled not because they had more men, but because God supported them. 
You've got the Catholic monarchs and the newly founded Spain. You've got Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and of course you've got the holiest of all holies, Louis XIV, the self-proclaimed most Christian king, literally called the Sun King. These divinely appointed absolute monarchs, once they really rose to power, they all consolidated that power. They forged their once fractured kingdoms into massive, centralized countries. The nobles weren't always thrilled with this change of affairs, but you kinda had to go along with it or your family would be killed because the monarch now held a monopoly of violence. And now any of those small robber bands, you know, from Robin Hood to the pirates, they became outlaws. They weren't just another enemy, they were enemies of the state and thus enemies of all. Of course, that's not the only reason that piracy made such a comeback. You've got better ships in the age of exploration and the fringes of empire where piracy always flourishes. But think about this. If the England of, say, 1300 had managed to colonize America and the West Indies, would the executives of those colonies be royally appointed governors, as they were when England did colonize those regions? Would they be men who needed royal authority to commission privateers and needed royal ships to help guard them? Or, in 1300, would those men have been dukes and barons and earls that raised their own fleets in the name of the king, but by their own volition? I think it's pretty clear that in 1300 that's how things were done, and the distinction, the definition of a pirate, would be a lot murkier. And I hear you out there. Some of you saying, what does this have to do with our story? What does this have to do with the golden age of piracy? Well, take those Cilician pirates as an example. They were necessary and tolerated by the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires, but only because they did what neither could do on their own. What would have happened to those Cilician pirates if, thanks to changes on the home front, they were no longer needed and in fact were a burden to one of those kingdoms. They would have been crushed, right? A fleet would have been sent out to destroy them. In our story, at the end of the 1600s, Captain William Kidd, pirate hunter, was necessary to the nation of England. But what do you think might happen to him, to that relationship between the men of the Adventure Galley and England, when the domestic situation changes drastically. Next time, the domestic situation changes drastically. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. 
After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight